Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity that you have given us to gather together this Wednesday evening in the name of the living name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you have called us through the gospel of your Son, that we may call upon you as our Father in heaven, we, your true children, by faith in his name. Lord, we thank you for this great mercy that you have given us. We thank you, Father, for the blessings of this week. We thank you for life and for breath, for a working mind and strong hands, the ability to work and to earn a living, to study and to enjoy the blessings of this world that you have made. Father, we praise you above all for your Son, our Savior, and for our salvation in his name. Lord, we pray that you would bless us, that you would grant us, Father, a greater measure of your Holy Spirit, that you would, uh, Father, warm our affections, enlighten our minds, and renew and move our wills, O God, to love you above all, to love your Son, and to serve him with all that is in us. Lord, we pray for each one of us here as uh, households, as individuals, that you would bless the husbands and wives, the marriages, Father, of this congregation. Please uh, give us, Lord, love one to another. Uh, May our marriages be uh, more and more uh, a delight and a joy and a testimony to your grace in our lives and to the love of Christ. Lord, we pray for uh, busy parents, uh, Lord, both of young children and children that are growing older. We ask that you would give us wisdom, Father, Uh, for the work that you have called us to. We thank you for uh, the gift of children and what a blessing uh, they are to us. We pray that you would, uh, Father, raise them up in uh, wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men, that you would give each uh, to grow in faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ and in hatred of sin and all that is evil. Father, we pray that you would uh, cause our homes to be uh, places in which your name is honored, which, in which your will is done. Uh, Lord, we pray, uh, Lord, for all of those in authority over us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give each one of them wisdom to do uh, their job uh, well. We pray, Father, that you would, uh, Father, cause those in authority, uh, give them, Father, a fear of your name, cause them to recognize that they stand before your face and that they will give an account for how they have used the authority that you have given them. Father, as we pray every week, we do continue to pray that you would put an end to uh, the massacre of children uh, by abortion. We pray, Father, for uh, that you would cause your spirit to bring, uh, Father, a uh, return to, uh, to what, Father, your word and nature teaches uh, Lord, we pray uh, for, true, uh, for true revival in our country. And Lord, we pray for the church, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ in this nation. We ask that you would purify us of all, uh, of all error, uh, Father, in doctrine. Cleanse us of all, uh, Father, error in life, of all sin and compromise. We pray that you would Grant us repentance from all of these things and that you would reform us according to your word. And Father, uh, give us life. Raise us up, Lord, that we might speak the truth with boldness and with courage, uh, that we might lay down our lives for our brethren. Uh, Father, we pray that you would make your church holy and healthy in this nation and that we would continue uh, to send out missionaries to uh, all the countries of the world. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity that we have to open your word, uh, to learn from uh, the life of one of your servants from many centuries ago. We pray, Father, that as we come to this time, that you would open our hearts uh, to what we are to see, uh, help us to uh, mark and to, to avoid the things, uh, Lord, that, uh, that we are to avoid, but to learn from our brothers and sisters in the faith. Lord, we pray a general blessing upon this congregation of all those who um, are recovering from operations or are 
recovering from illnesses or whatever it may be, we do ask your blessing upon each member, Lord. Meet us according to your need. We thank you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, you may be seated. Uh, We're going to begin uh, with a reading from Scripture, and this is, uh, we'll begin with the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 27 to 28. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 27 to 28. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. Amen. Well, we are considering this evening uh, the life, the work, and I put in italics the witness of a man named John Huss, and I'm using the word witness there in kind of its original sense, the, the martyrdom of John Huss, martyr being our English word from the Greek word for witness, to bear witness, to give testimony. Um, the life, the work, and the witness of John Huss. But before we begin, and this is something that we have touched on a, a number of times in the course of our uh, survey through various figures in church history, it's always good to remind ourselves how we are approaching the life and the work of someone like John Huss or someone like John Wycliffe. And I, I put here in italics under introduction, and again, if, maybe if you didn't know, we do have handouts in the back. If you did not get one, uh, you can uh, go back there, and, and they are available there. Um, but I put the question in italics here, where was the church before the Reformation? Uh, this is a question that um, has been asked, I think is still asked by some people, that as Reformed Christian, Christians, as Protestants, do we believe that the church disappeared and then appeared again in the 16th century? And I think it's helpful to go back to Scripture and see how Scripture can shape our thinking, right? can form our thinking as we think about church history. So thinking biblically about church history. And I'd like to go to the example of Josiah's reform uh, in, in the kings. Judah and Jerusalem, if you remember the context of Josiah's reign, had been inundated with idolatry and wickedness under Manasseh's 55-year reign of terror. 55 years, and we remember what the, what the, what the author of Kings says of Manasseh, that he did worse, not just then Israel, but then all the nations. Uh, more evil than all the, all the surrounding nations, 55 years uh, of idolatry, of ignorance, and of wickedness. Well, after the book of the law is discovered in the temple, Josiah hears the words, he rends his clothes, and he begins to make sweeping reforms. And someone could say, well, look, you're doing something new, right? Right? I mean, and, and there, there were people, there were children, right, who were born, let's say, at the beginning of Manasseh's reign, that all they knew in Israel was the son of David, the Davidic king, leading the nation in idolatry and wickedness, right? And for them, this was something new. But it wasn't absolutely new. It wasn't truly new, because all that Josiah was doing, quite humbly, was he was purging Israel, not creating a new Israel, not calling a new nation out of bondage, right? Not, not creating a new nation, not instituting new, uh, a, new, uh, new, a new covenant or new sacraments or these things. No, no, no. He was simply purging Israel. The Lord used him, the Holy Spirit used him to purge Israel, in some cases punish Israel, according to the pattern laid down in Holy Scripture. The covenant... Uh, uh, documents, the, the Holy Scriptures, was the pattern by which the son of David, the Davidic king, purged the nation of Israel. And I think we, we see here something, uh, an, an, an application, certainly not the first application of the doctrine of sola scriptura, but I think it's a very good one. Uh, a historical, a biblical example of a reformation that is according to God's word. Well, John Huss, or Jan Hus, 
Uh, I don't speak Czech, so I'm not trying to make pretensions here, but that's what I've heard how it's pronounced. Jan Hus, or the English version, John Hus, was born in 1369. He lived to 1415. He was a Bohemian. He was from the modern-day Czech Republic. He was a preacher and a reformer who heralded the teachings of John Wycliffe in Bohemia. He was betrayed, condemned as a heretic, and burned at the stake at the Council of Constance in 1415. His life glows with love to Christ and loyalty to his word, even to death. And his life and work form a powerful portent of the 16th century Reformation. Um, You notice the dates there. Uh, John Huss died almost 100 years before Martin Luther uh, posted his famous theses on the church door in Wittenberg. And I, I would say this is a powerful portent of what was to come. But what we're going to see, I think, is that John Huss was certainly not the first in his community, um, uh, certainly not the first. He entered a, an environment in which these ideas were swirling around. Nevertheless, the, your, the Lord used him in a powerful way uh, to, uh, to sow the seeds and to set the stage uh, for what we would see in the 16th century. Well, before we get into his life and look at his teachings, let's back up here and let's take a little look at the political, the religious, and the social context of the 14th century. And Dane uh, spoke last week, talked about the first of the big events of this century. Uh, by the way, it was a pretty bad century. Okay, when you think of it, as far as centuries goes, the 14th century was not a very good one. We talked about the Black Death or the bubonic plague, this great, uh, horrific plague, disease that spread across Europe. Uh, the uh, children learn about this in, in uh, junior high or high school. I mean, everyone has heard of the Black Death. Um, well, the worst outbreak was between the years 1347 and 1350, but the outbreaks continued regularly for uh, centuries after, on into the 17th century, you would have outbreaks of this particular plague. Europe loses, as Dane mentioned, 40 to 50 percent of its population. 30 to 40 million people die. Okay. Uh, almost 50 percent of the population is killed as a result of this plague. Well, as often happens, as we saw during COVID, which probably doesn't, wouldn't even appear on the radar screen compared to this. Um, but as we see during times of plague, there are a variety of reactions that come as a result. There is fear, irrational fear sometimes, but in this case, it would be quite rational fear. There's hatred. There's bitterness. There's also humility. When the Lord strikes a nation, the godly, what? Humble themselves. Um, humility is one of the things that came from this, and also great acts of heroism. Uh, uh, While many or some uh, chose to use this opportunity uh, to uh, simply give themselves over to the lusts of the flesh, live and let live, we're going to die tomorrow, uh, many others and and many uh, faithful servants in the church uh, ministered to the sick and dying, knowing that they themselves would likewise probably uh, die as well. But it caused a variety of reactions across Europe. And as we consider the life of John Wycliffe, remember this in the background. He lives right after the worst of this plague, 1347 to 1315. Well, another thing that we discussed last week, we're going to expand a little bit upon as well, but the big religious and political situation that forms the backdrop of John Huss's life is the Avignon Papacy and the Great Schism. It's important to remember when we consider the Avignon Papacy that throughout the Middle Ages, the office, the power, and the pretensions of the papacy have been steadily growing. This is something that you see quite early, uh, and yet there are certain figures in the history of the Middle Ages as we move into Uh, the high Middle Ages, and then towards the Reformation, there are certain figures that mark key uh, points in which we see uh, uh, a certain acceleration in terms of the claims that are being made 
for the office of the papacy, for the bishop of the Roman church. One of these is the figure of Hildebrand, otherwise known as Gregory VII, and he lived from 1073 to 1085. He issued a decree called the Dictatus Papae, which said, among other things, I'm going to read here a number of what is uh, stated in this document so you can get a sense not only for the claims that are being made by the Bishop of Rome, but the backdrop that John, Hus- John Wycliffe, John Huss, and not just these men, but the church Catholic, okay, and many, many, many people within that church are dealing with, are wrestling with to one degree or another. In this dictate, he says the Roman church was founded by God alone. He says that all princes should kiss his feet and his alone. It states that the Roman church has never erred, nor will it ever, according to Scripture. Infallibility. No synod is to be called ecumenical except with his permission. And then finally, the pope may depose emperors. So you get a sense here for the kinds of claims that are being made uh, by the bishop of Rome pertaining to the office of the papacy. Well, papal power reaches its peak under Pope Innocent III, and then later Boniface VIII issues Unum Sanctum, which is another document. We're not going to to read it, but uh, establishing what we see in these earlier earlier documents. Well, between 1309 and 1377, the Pope moves his residence to Avignon, France, and The significance of this is that basically the papacy comes under the control of the French king and of the French nation, the French nobles. Well, this was a serious political, moral, as well as a theological crisis. Remember the document that I just read, okay? There were were these claims that were being made about the office of the papacy, and yet here we are, the papacy's moved to this nice little place in the the south of France, and you can read descriptions of the Avignon papacy, it was not exactly characterized by humility or, uh, or purity. Uh, and so this is a crisis. It's a political crisis because you basically have the French king, the French nation, controlling the office of the papacy. It's a moral crisis because how can, if this, if this is true, what is, what is the pope doing? It's a theological crisis as well. Well, the crisis would set in motion uh, the movement that would become known as conciliarism. And conciliarism was this movement that said, yes, the Pope has some authority, but not that kind of authority. And basically that a church council, a duly called church council, has authority over the dictates of the Pope. This is the movement known as conciliarism. The Pope can err, Um, The Pope can err. He's not infallible. A council, however, is above uh, the Pope. Well, the Avignon papacy, that was eventually resolved, and it comes back to the city of Rome. And through a series of events, however, we immediately move into another crisis known as the Great Schism between 1378 and 1417. And I say here that the Great Schism really makes the Avignon papacy look like a typo, right? A kind of theological typo, because uh, it is far worse than uh, what happened in Avignon. It is a massive embarrassment, and it's not just an embarrassment for Christians. I mean, it makes the church the laughingstock of the Jews, of Muslims, of the whole world. It's really, it's, it, it is a great embarrassment. There are first two, and then at one time, three competing popes excommunicating each other, raising armies against, against each other, denouncing each other. It is a massive crisis. Well, you can imagine what this did to the cause of the conciliarists, right? We go from Avignon, when learned men begin saying, you know what, I think councils are the answer to this problem. And then you go right into the Great Schism and say, yes, definitely councils are the answer to this problem. Um, we cannot, uh, there, there, there is no other way. Uh, it, so there were first, like as I said, first two and then three competing popes. The Council of Constance, which 
will become very significant as we move into the life of John Huss. This is the council at which he is put to death, was actually called in part to end the schism. So the council at which John Huss is put to death is called in order primarily to deal with this problem of the great schism, the three competing popes. So keep that in mind. Also keep in mind as well that when you hear conciliaris and you think, well, they're, they're saying things that we would, we would agree with primarily. I mean, at face value, we would say that's true. A, a council does have more authority, right, than, a, than the individual man. But be careful because just because you were a conciliaris did not make you necessarily a friend of Wycliffe or a friend of Huss or a friend of any other of these attempts at reform. Okay, conciliarism was simply the, uh, the, the, uh, the opinion and the position that a church council was above and had more authority than uh, the dictates of the Bishop of Rome. Well, a third uh, thing to consider in the backdrop here as we move into, into John Huss's life is, of course, the effect, the life and the teachings of John Wycliffe, which we heard about last week. John Wycliffe, his life, his teachings, his ideas, his books, begin to make their way outside of England, across the continent of Europe, and specifically into Bohemia. And this happens, one of the ways that it happens is through a royal marriage. Richard II of England marries Anne of Luxembourg, who is sister to the king of Bohemia. So the, the, the sister to the king of Bohemia marries King Richard II of England. And then so these two nations are joined by that royal marriage. Well, this initiates a flow of students, right? Much like uh, when the U.S. has a, a kind of a, a partnership, for example, with Jordan, right? You have a lot of these American programs where students will, will, you know, will go over and study at these institutions in, in the Middle East or whatever. In a similar way, you have these, this flow of students moving between Bohemia and England. And John Wycliffe's teachings and his writings begin to make their way into Bohemia. And one of the most important transmitters of Wycliffe's works is a man named Jerome of Prague. And we will again encounter him at the end of the story. But Jerome of Prague is a, is a student, and he goes to England, and he eventually comes back, and he brings with him uh, some of Wycliffe's works. Well, let's look at the biography and the work, the early years of John Huss. He was born in 1369 in Husinek, Bohemia. Uh, his name actually means goose, so if you're doing reading on him, you may encounter that. He uses that to kind of describe himself at times in a humorous way. Uh, but he's born in 1369 in Husinek, uh, Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic. Well, his parents are poor. His father dies uh, when he is young. And uh, however, he has the opportunity through the, the patronage, through the help of some royal uh, nobles, they actually pay for his education, and he works his way up the academic ladder, becoming rector, and I, I saw two dates for this, and I think it was, um, so I put 1402-1409, I think you can say 1409 definitely, but I also saw a 1402 date um, as well. Well, uh, so he works up the academic ladder, and he becomes rector uh, of the University of Prague, a newly established university in that country. Well, in the year 1402, Huss begins preaching at a place known as Bethlehem Chapel. And this is a, an important uh, place name associated with his life uh, to, to remember Bethlehem Chapel. Uh, he was known at this period as the main proponent of Wycliffe's Views, And I just want to say something quickly about Bethlehem Chapel before we get into uh, John Huss. Um, Bohemia, when John begins preaching, there is already there an atmosphere that is very pro-reform. And for a number of years before he started this, there were efforts made at uh, reforming both the life, uh, the morals, and the teachings of the church in Bohemia, and two wealthy laymen, so not uh, churchmen, two wealthy laymen actually built 
or had built Bethlehem Chapel specifically with the purpose that it would be used for preaching in the Czech language on Sundays and feast days. Okay, so this is a this is a this is a medieval chapel uh, that's built by two godly laymen, wealthy laymen, and they say we want a place where the people can come and hear the word of God in the Czech language because they don't know Latin, right? And so you see already Huss is stepping into a situation. He's not inventing these kind of ideas. He's stepping into an atmosphere in which the people are already hungry and in which wealthy Christians are already using their resources to, uh, to facilitate this kind of ministry. Um, it's also interesting, the pictures on the wall of the Bethlehem Chapel were all, I guess you could kind of describe them as anti-papal. So they, they, were, they would have a picture of the Pope in his sort of royal pomp and splendor, and then they would have a picture of Christ uh, you know, doing something like washing the disciples' feet. And they would be juxtaposing these two, and these were placed all along the walls of the chapel basically showing the difference between Christ and his alleged vicar on earth, right? What a difference between the two. And so uh, John Huss, he steps into this environment. He begins preaching at Bethlehem Chapel. As I said, he was known at this period as the main proponent of Wycliffe's ideas. And he was unashamed of that. He didn't try to contextualize that. Uh, he, no problem, like, this is who I am, right? This is, this is it. Uh, this being said, he did not accept all of Wycliffe's ideas. Uh, he, was, he agreed with him on the nature of the church as being the whole body of the predestined with God as the, the head and savior. He agreed with him on a number of other things, but for example, on the issue of transubstantiation, John Huss was actually more of a Lateran, fourth Lateran council. He did not touch that doctrine. He maintained that, that it is the physical body and blood of Christ. So it's interesting with these early reformers, right? They're not all of one mold, right? The, these are individual men, individual thinkers. They're reading the Bible. They're certainly benefiting from each other, but Huss is not copying Wycliffe. Now, in some cases, when he publishes works, he does just quote directly from him. Um, but He's not simply taking his ideas, and he's not a follower in that sense. He has his own mind. But he does follow Wycliffe uh, most of the time. It's also important to note that Huss is preaching in the midst of rising, and I put here European and then Bohemian nationalism. So remember with the Avignon Papacy, what was the big deal? It was that the French nation was basically controlling the Pope, and then the Italians got angry, and they wanted, you know, a Pope to come from them, and then the Germans wanted, you know, and so what you have in this time is there's a rising nationalism, Germans, French, Italian, Scottish, Spanish, and this is happening also in Bohemia as well, okay? Well, opposition intensifies in 1411 after Huss condemns the selling of indulgences. One of the rival Popes sends an indulgence seller uh, to the city to sell indulgences so that he can raise an army to fight against another pope. And Huss has had enough. I mean, this is ridiculous. This has to stop. And so he begins preaching against, against, this, um, uh, against this sale of indulgences. Well, Pope John XXIII, and I, we should put a question mark after Pope, because again, remember, we're in the Great Schism. We don't actually know who the Pope is. But Pope John XXIII excommunicates Huss and then threatens to put Prague under interdict. Now, this is an important word in the medieval period. Interdict meant that essentially no church, no priest could administer the sacraments or could, or could perform any other sacred, or in some cases, in many cases, there were also civic consequences as well. For example, you couldn't get married uh, because, it, remember, at this time, so many things are, being, are connected to the life of the church uh, that when a city is put under interdict, um, it is, it's not only bringing uh, sacred life to a halt, in the place it's bringing civic life to a halt as well. So he threatens, the Pope threatens to put Prague under interdict. 
Well, Huss wisely leaves the city, uh, but continues to preach and minister in the country. So he rightly, I think, decides to leave the city, um, and yet he continues to preach in southern, in southern Bohemia uh, at this time. Well, I thought I would read you here a selection, very briefly, from some of his letters to give you a taste of this man's uh, spirit, and also to show a number, just a, a variety of things. One, their understanding of themselves in relation to the Pope. Also, the connection between Wycliffe and the Lollards. Remember, the followers of Wycliffe or those who were uh, those who followed after Wycliffe in England. The connection between Wycliffe and Huss and their their various movements. Well, in one of uh, the letters of Wycliffe, he receives a letter from an English Lollard named Richard White. I think I'm pronouncing his name correct. Um, and w- Richard White is a vicar of Deptford uh, in England, and he sends uh, he sends John Huss a letter after a number uh, uh, of Wycliffe's books and other writings had been burned in the city of Prague uh, by by papal decree. He sends him a letter to encourage him, and I'll just read a selection from it and then Huss's response so you can get an idea. I rejoice, this is Richard uh, White's writing, I rejoiced above measure when our beloved brethren came and gave testimony to us of your truth, how also you walked in the truth. I have heard, brethren, how sharply Antichrist persecutes you in vexing the faithful servants of Christ with diverse and unheard of afflictions. And surely no marvel if amongst you, as it is so amongst all the world over, the law of Christ be grievously impugned, and that red dragon with his many heads, of whom it is spoken in the Apocalypse, have now vomited that great flood out of his mouth, whereby he goeth about to swallow up the woman. And so uh, Richard White, writing to John Huss, uh, of course they're referring to the uh, the persecution that they are in, uh, suffering, enduring uh, from, uh, from the Pope. He encourages him, therefore let no tribulation or anguish for Christ's cause discourage us, knowing this for a surety that whomsoever the Lord vouchsafes to receive to be his children, these he scourgeth. Uh, you can hear the, the rich scriptural uh, language that underlies these letters encouraging us to continue. He says, Behold, therefore, Huss, most dearly beloved brother in Christ, although in face unknown to me, yet not in faith or love, for distance of place cannot separate those whom the love of Christ doth effectually knit together. Be comforted in the, in the grace which is given to thee. Labor like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Preach, be instant in word and example, and recall as many as thou canst to the way of truth. For the truth of the gospel is not to be kept in silence, because of the frivolous censors and thunderbolts of Antichrist, uh, encouraging him boldly to continue to preach the word. And then, but I love this. You know, when you're reading history, you're, you're, these, are, these, these are different people, right? And they're writing at different times. He ends the letter like this. At London, on the nativity of the glorious virgin in the year 1410. <laughs> you know, so a medieval brother, um, but filled with the Holy Spirit, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and writing to, um, to John Huss to encourage him. Well, John Huss responds uh, to him, and he writes this, I am thankful that Bohemia has, under the power of Jesus Christ, received so much good from the blessed land of England through your labors. And I do not wonder that while to some it is a savor unto death, yet to others it is a savor unto joy, because for many it is a savor unto life eternal. For the enemy of man had sown tares so widely in our kingdom that scarcely a grain or two of wheat appeared. And then he says this, But now the people which walked in darkness have beheld the great light of Jesus Christ. The light of truth has appeared to them that dwell in the region of the shadow of death and is eagerly welcomed under our Savior's power by the people, barons, knights, counts, and the common folk. And something to note here is, one, they're, they're rejoicing that they're having so many opportunities to preach Christ to people. And, but what's n- noteworthy as well is 
the support that John Huss enjoys from his own countrymen. The nobles, as he says, the, the barons, the knights, the counts, and the common folk. And this is a really interesting uh, feature of his ministry that he really enjoyed. As I said, the context of kind of a, a, a rising uh, na- nationalism, but also, uh, you know, d- just a, um, you know, the, 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 the favor that he enjoyed from, uh, from the people. And then he says this, wherever in city or town, in village or castle, the preacher of the holy truth makes his appearance, the people flock together in crowds, despising the clergy who are not able to furnish it. As a result, Satan hath arisen, hath arisen, for now the tale of Behemoth himself hath been set in motion, and it remains for the Lord Jesus Christ to bruise his head. Um, and then I believe, yes, and then that's it. So I hope that gives you a taste, uh, just a sense for the fervency uh, of this man. Uh, from this reading, I think, something to take away from the life of John Huss. You know, I think when you're studying a a figure from church history, I think it's helpful sometimes to think, who is this person primarily, right? Are they a theologian primarily? Are they a missionary primarily? Well, when you think about the life of John Huss, I think the word that should come to your mind, and you heard it in the letter, he is primarily a preacher, He's primarily a preacher. That's his heart. He simply wants to tell as many people in Bohemia, he wants to unfold the scriptures to them uh, as, as much as he can. He is a preacher first and last. He's not like Wycliffe. Wycliffe was a preacher. But Wycliffe, think of the relationship between John Calvin and John Knox, right? John Calvin is kind of the brains of the operation, right? I think we would all agree. And what does John Knox do? He says, I'm going to take this and I'm going to bring it back to a nation, right? And the Lord uses him in that particular way. Well, in a sense, I think there's a similar relationship between Wycliffe and Huss. Wycliffe is the brains of the operation. He's the one buried in the scriptures, in his manuscripts, in his original languages, sifting through, coming to terms with what this is teaching. What is the word of God teaching? Huss is doing that as well. I'm not denying him that. But he is more than that. He is a preacher. He's taking that truth, right? That living word, the bread of life, and he's saying, I'm going to give this to as many people as I can. He is first and last. He is a preacher. Okay, so we come now uh, to Roman numeral three, martyrdom and significance. So things begin to heat up, especially after he... Uh, condemns the selling of indulgences. Uh, This is when uh, things begin to really heat up. And the Holy Roman Empire, or Emperor, Sigismund is his name, who is also the brother, he's the brother of the king of Bohemia. Okay, So Sigismund, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, is the brother of the king of Bohemia, and he calls the Council of Constance to settle multiple issues, including the agitation that's taking place in Bohemia, and of course, central to that is the figure of John Huss. Well, Sigismund promises safe conduct, but upon arrival in Constance, John Huss is wickedly, uh, he, he, Sigismund wickedly reneges and throws Huss in prison. So he actually promises him safe conduct. He gets to the city, he stays a couple days, I believe, and then he's arrested and he's thrown in prison. For six months, Huss suffers in prison under deplorable uh, conditions. He was placed basically next to the sewer. Uh, And so he immediately began to develop all sorts of vomiting and uh, um, all sorts of conditions. Uh, He nearly dies uh, um, as a result of this imprisonment. Um, it is interesting as well that Pope John, Pope John the Twenty-Third, actually tries to flee Constance because he's such a wicked man. He knows he's probably going to be arrested by the council and have to answer for some of his misdeeds. He tries to flee Constance. He gets arrested and he gets put in prison. And actually, there is a time where Wycliffe and the Pope John the Twenty-Third are actually imprisoned together. Now, they're not necessarily in the same room, but they're in the same place. And 
the contrast of these two men could not be more uh, stark. And what happens to each of them at the end is also, it kind of reminds you of John the Baptist, that sometimes the Lord uh, ordains and wills that his most faithful servants uh, die in, in the most uh, dishonorable way. Uh, and yet the, 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 the ones who perhaps should have been condemned to death for, for what they did are allowed to go free uh, or even promoted. Well, after six months in prison, he is brought uh, before uh, to brought to trial. Uh, it is not really a trial. He is not allowed really to say anything. He is shouted at or shouted down. He is bullied for about three days. And remember when I said that as a result of the Avignon Papacy and the Great Schism, the conciliar movement, um, some of the brightest in Europe were really thinking this is the answer to papal abuse and, and the problems that are plaguing the church was if we appoint a church council. And the trial was actually led by one of the leading conciliarists at the time, a Frenchman uh, by the name of Delay. And so you have a leading conciliarist who in some ways may have been sympathetic to some of what Wycliffe was saying. Nevertheless, um, are, they're not on the same team. Um, he's bullied for three days, and then in a uh, ceremony, he is publicly deposed from the priesthood. So his garments are taken off one by one. Uh, he is uh, committed to the devil, uh, to which he replies, and I commit myself to my most gracious Lord, Jesus. Um, and then on July 6, 1415, he is led uh, to be burned. The church uh, does not do this. They hand him over to Sigismund, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, who executes the, the sentence. Um, what's quite remarkable, and you see this with some uh, people who are called to suffer in this way, Huss does not cry out. He doesn't scream when they light the flames. Uh, the Lord gives him grace to endure patiently. He dies calmly and quietly. And he repeats to himself, I shall, or he says to himself, or says to those around him, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. And, uh, you know, I, I think to myself, if, if ever I am called to suffer in some way like that, may I have that grace, right, to just quietly, calmly uh, uh, go to the end that God has prepared. Um, so a, a model of faithfulness. Uh, and well, this, so he is uh, put to death on July 6, 1415. Well, back in Bohemia, again, remembering the connection who John Huss is, um, this causes an uproar. People are furious at this, and rightly so. The, the emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor, as, as, as we were driving here, I said, um, we're going to talk about a man named John Huss, and, and the Holy Roman Emperor put him to death, and my son said, that, that wasn't a very holy thing to do. <laughs> I said, you're right, that was not a very holy thing to do. But, um, but, the, but, but the, the, the kingdom of Bohemia is in an uproar. Uh, we, if you remember the name Jerome of Prague, who was one of these early transmitters of Wycliffe's books and ideas to the kingdom of Bohemia, he is also martyred. He's put to death in the year 1416. And these two deaths together... Uh, light the fuse which explodes in 1419 after the death of King Wenceslas, which we get the good King Wenceslas. Um, he is the king of Bohemia. Uh, he is brother to Sigismund. When he dies, Sigismund is heir to the throne. Well, the Bohemians are not going to have this. This is the emperor that, uh, that bro broke his word and put to death um, one of his subjects without a fair trial. And so what do they do. Well, for the next 14 years, uh, there are uh, two generals by the name of John Ziska, who has one eye. When your last name Ziska and you're a general and you have one eye, it's going it's to be interesting. Uh, and then also Procopius the Great, they lead Bohemia to one victory after another. So the kingdom of Bohemia says, no, we're not going to have Sigismund as king. king. Uh, they rebel. Uh, the, the Holy Roman Empire uh, attacks, and remarkably, the Bohemians repel, and not just repel, uh, not just the Holy Roman Emperor, all of Catholic Europe is against them. And they not only repel them, but they drive into Germany. 
uh, and they have remarkable success for 14 years, and then eventually uh, the Pope um, and the Holy Roman Emperor simply give up, and they say, this is, we, we can't do this. Uh, and so they call them to negotiate at the Council of Basel. Well, at the Council of Basel, uh, a number of concessions are given to the Bohemian Church, the Bohemian National Church. And uh, some of these concessions uh, included the receiving of bread and wine, so both bread and wine. You remember, as we move into the High Middle Ages, uh, they began to withhold the wine from the people, and one of the demands of John Huss and others was that both bread and wine be given to the people in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Hussite priests could preach the word openly. And when you think of a victory, and I'm kind of putting this here, I was going to say this later, when you think of a short-term victory for someone's life, like you give your life, and 14 years later, disciples, priests, are able to preach openly in the kingdom of Bohemia, that's, that's good. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Openly, freedom to preach openly. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How many people are in heaven because priests were able to preach openly in the kingdom of Bohemia? Because John Huss gave his life and because you have two great generals like Ziska and Procopius, right? They all work together, but, but, but amazing. Like, look, look at what they're, they're able to do. All clergy are bound to live simple, humble lives and mortal sins should be punished by secular courts. So some things we maybe not initially or readily understand, but nevertheless, we see that great victory uh, in, in the aftermath of this. However, not all Hussites accepted the Council of Basel, and there were two basic camps within uh, the Bohemian Church. There were those known as the Utraquists, and you could think of these as kind of the conservative element. They wanted to remain within uh, the church. And, um, and, uh, and then the Taborites, uh, but keep in mind, we don't, I don't want to separate them too much. Remember, they fought together for 14 years against the Holy Roman Emperor. So they're, they're, they are more similar than they are dissimilar. However, there were internal divisions that after the Council of Basel, these were aggravated, and so the, the Utraquists remain in the Catholic Church while a large number of what are known as Taborites, who would be uh, less conservative. The, the Taborites, interestingly, would actually have more in common with Protestant ideas later on. For example, prayers to the saints, prayers to the dead. They deny transubstantiation, the doctrine of transubstantiation. And yet, in, their, uh, in other ways, they would be more similar to Anabaptists. So they would deny or they would hold to some form of common property ownership and other things. And so it's a mixed bag. It always is, uh, right? But you have these two groups, and they leave the national church, and they lead, leading eventually to the creation of the United Bohemian Brotherhood, which would spread in that region, Bohemia and Moravia, from which we get the Moravian Church, Right? So we, when you hear of, of them later on in church history, this is sort of uh, where, they, where they come from. Well, most Hussites, however, uh, will join the 16th century Protestant Reformation. So you think about this basically a hundred years before Luther. And Luther really didn't know anything about John Huss's teaching at the beginning. But a hundred years before Luther, you already have this happening in the kingdom of Bohemia. And when the Protestant Reformation gets going and they learn of it, um, they, of course, uh, they, 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 they join the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Well, I will conclude with this, uh, with this observation. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And throughout church history, and especially in its darkest days, when idolatry or ignorance and wickedness seem to have prevailed, Christ remains with his church by his spirit, calling, sanctifying, and glorifying his people by means of his word. Um, John Huss is a model of love to Christ's sheep. Remember, he was a preacher first. 
He loved his countrymen. He loved his people. And as I was reading of this, I thought, you know, we live in a nation where many of our countrymen don't really love us, right? They would rather that we be, that we be gone. Uh, but we should have a healthy, there is a right, proper, biblical love for the people of your nation that the Lord has put you in. And we should love the people of our nation despite, right? Not because of their loveliness, but in, in spite of it, in spite of the sin and the hatred, and preach to them, bring them the gospel, call them to repentance and to faith and to eternal life through Jesus Christ. He's a model of love to Christ's sheep and perseverance in the face of hardship, whose faithfulness was used of God to grant a measure of gospel freedom in Bohemia, which lasted up until the time of the Reformation. And one of the things that was just encouraging about that is when we think of sacrifice, uh, I tend to think of long-term fruit. And that's true, right? I tend to think of long-term fruit. But remarkably, John Huss's preaching and his bravery and his faithfulness to the end, to the point of death, and then the, the baton being picked up by largely the, the nobles, the, the barons and the nobles of Bohemia picking that up after his death and uh, refusing to submit to Sigismund, fighting bravely and securing a peace for the Bohemian church that would last up until the time of the Reformation, where priests can go around freely and preach the word. Um, And so when we think about gospel success as a result of our sacrifice, as a result of our prayers, sometimes the Lord, sometimes it takes time, right? Um, But sometimes it happens very quickly. Uh, Open the king of England's eyes. How many years later? There's an English Bible. Why was he being put to death? Right? Years. Open the king of England's eyes. And so we should pray. And based on what we see in history, we should expect, according to God's infinite, eternal, wise plan, uh, to see gospel success, um, even, in, even in the generation of our children or great-grandchildren, right? So um, a great encouragement to us, I think, um, tonight. Well, let's close there. 